on earth are we, why in heaven are we here, and how to make sense of this mess of our humanness, and perhaps even transcend it. Welcome everyone to season two of Dawn of an Era of Well-Being, where we deep dive into uplift with insight, thanks to remarkably informed guests exploring the nature of our human nature and how to better engage it. If abnormal is the new normal and perceiving is the new believing, then inner is the new outer and consciousness is our new source of healing. Yet for many, it seems like anything but the dawn of an era of well-being. From pandemia to war to economic, environmental, and even democratic breakdown and more, as space exploration advances at breakneck pace, all share center stage in this overheated emotional climate that our species struggles to navigate. So what's going on? Well, if you look at it from the outside in, it's the same old conflictual story getting rather scary. But now we're raising the bar by raising awareness that this mess of our humanness can only be resolved from the inside out as in vision that emanates from a profound shift in perception about the world around us and within us. This is precisely the thrust of Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing podcast and insightful book. I'm Alison Goldwyn, and we're in a mighty discussion space featuring mighty voices of loving change, two of whom are our esteemed co-hosts, Irvin Laszlo, a two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, world-renowned philosopher and system scientist, author or co-author of over 106 books, founder of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research and the Club of Budapest, and recipient of multiple honors and awards like the Goya Peace Prize, the Assisi Mandirov Peace Prize, and the Luxembourg Peace Prize. And Fred Sau, business leader, author, futurist, practitioner of Eastern wisdom and Western science, chairman of the Family Business Network's Ambassador Circle, and founder of ITEA Institute and Octave Institute, fusing ancient wisdom and quantum science as a platform for people to achieve a purposeful life, mindfully lived at new levels of consciousness and freedom. So I want to speak today with Irvin and our wonderful guest, Dawson, who I'm going to introduce in, in just a moment about our identity. We're in a global identity crisis. Uh, and I think that collectively and individually, we're all struggling to understand exactly who we are in this new normal, this new abnormal, for lack of a better term. Uh, I'm going to introduce Dawson, and then I'm going to pose a very interesting question that may be a little um, left of center, but we'll see how, how our our people, our guests, and everybody who's listening would answer it if they were in the same situation. Okay, so dawn of an era of well-being, Dawson Church. Do you hear what I hear? Awe. And that's a great way to introduce today's awesome guest, Dr. Dawson Church. He's a PhD, an integrative healthcare researcher, and an award-winning author of books such as Mind to Matter, The Astonishing Science of How Your Brain Creates Material Reality, the bestseller, The Genie in Your Genes, hailed by reviewers as a breakthrough in our understanding of the link between emotions and genetics, and his most recent Bliss Brain, demonstrating that flow states rapidly remodel the brain for happiness. He's edited or authored more than 200 books in the fields of health, psychology, spirituality, and healing trauma, which have garnered more than two dozen awards, including Best Health Book, 
Independent Press Awards, and Best Science Book, USA Book News Awards. Dawson is a pioneer in the field of epigenetics and a national leader and professional trainer in emotional freedom techniques, EFT, a modality endorsed by the Veterans Administration as an alternative method suitable for work with veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which I actually think much of the world is suffering from in, in more ways than one. He's founding director of the Veterans Stress Project and founder of the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare. He shares how to apply breakthroughs to health and athletic performance through EFT Universe, one of the largest alternative medicine sites on the web. He's been quoted by USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, Parenting, the BBC, and CNN, among other national media. Awesome, Dawson. Welcome. Awesome. <laughs> it's such a joy to be here. And all of those activities and credentials, and the bottom line is, are we having fun? Are we in joy? Are we in bliss? So that's that's the main qualification to bring to the table here. Indeed. And we're going to touch on that. But before we go there, there's so many questions I want to ask you. But <clears throat> I want to ask both you and Irvin, and then we'll also ask Fred uh, later on in the show. Uh, all these honorable mentions state who you are, who Irvin is, who Fred is, via what you do. Now, I want to know about who you are, absent of the doing, as a human being. Because to get to a world of well-being in which job losses and conventional ways of living are going to be upended, they already are, we're going to have to redress, if you will, what we define as accomplishments vis-a-vis -vis the outer world and cull it more and more from the inner. And I want to start with this golden moment when you, Dawson, lost nearly everything and in a certain sense wound up finding more than everything. You lost your home, all your possessions in a 2017 fire, which was a kind of NDE, a near-death experience. It stripped you of all that you think you are. Yet in your case, or in Irvin's case and Fred's case, you all can still rely on your reputations to buoy you like, like life rafts, even when life itself is, is really challenging you. Um, you even wrote your bestseller during that very challenging year's aftermath. Uh, so I'm asking you because you still had your career, your work, but had that itself vanished and it was just the naked you devoid of your reputation and your persona, if you will, would you be able to still accept yourself as a human being, even if you weren't doing? And um, if uh, we're all being called upon to awaken to our human being, but we're still living in a world that's so married to the doing, in places certainly like the U.S., where it's much more top-heavy, I think, than in the Asian cultures, and Fred can speak to that, I'd like to know from you and from Irvin what it means to self-accept devoid of your personas, your reputations, your accomplishments. Who would like to start? Irvin, Dawson? <laughs> I'd like to hear Dawson on this, really. So would I. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I, I feel as though all of our doing springs from our being. 
And if you are centered in being, if you're able to wake up in the morning, you breathe, you give thanks. Like I meditated a couple of days ago and it rained here in Northern California. We need rain right now. And um, I just felt so blissful staring at the raindrops bouncing on the ground as I meditated. And that that being is the crucial thing. Even when I lost my home and my business and everything, all my possessions in a few moments and in that that wildfire, I realized in the days and weeks to that followed that we still had being. We still had all these these um qualities of being like love and gratitude and compassion and joy. And those can't be burned. So there are things we do, but those things we do spring from being. And if we have that, we have everything. If we don't have that, no matter how big our accomplishments, we don't have anything. If you don't have peace of mind, don't have love, don't have joy, then what are you doing any of it for? So I always look at what I'm doing in the external world through the lens of where I am in the internal world. Mm. Have you always been able to do that? Or was there a process, a developmental process in yourself that transitioned from the outer, the outer accomplishments? Like when you, when you, uh, wrote your first successful book, for example, were you already in that space, that headspace that you're describing? Or what, were you still very married to the success, <laughs> the identity? <laughs> Also, it took me 50 years to get here because when I was a, a 15 year old, a 15 years old, as a teenager, I left home and went and lived on a spiritual community. And I spent many years studying the perennial philosophy, uh, Aldous Huxley, Alan Watts, um, all of these great, great philosophers and figures. And it, as a teenager, I didn't, didn't get much happier. But when I turned 45, I made the commitment to meditate every single day. And that really began to move the needle for me. And so for me, meditation and reflection every single day is powerful. And I developed a, a method called eco-meditation because it's so hard to meditate for people, especially traumatized people. They close their eyes. And, if, you know, we've worked now with over 20,000 veterans with PTSD and mm -hmm. at the Veteran Stress Project. And um, they close their eyes and try and meditate. And their minds are flooded with traumatic images often. So... Even for the average person who's not traumatized, they are distracted by monkey mind. So I developed eco-meditation, began to use it. And we've now done many studies of this, both of the experience of people and also MRI studies showing what happens in their brains. And this is going to sound astonishing because it's, it's a radically new understanding of the neuroscience of meditation. We found in one study being published this month, actually, in a top-tier journal, that people's brains actually start to remodel themselves within 28 days, four weeks of doing this. So within four weeks, we find that the functional connectivity of the brain changes and your centers of suffering, the centers that construct your sense of self, the default mode network, that starts, part of the brain starts to dial down, not just in meditation, in daily life. And the insula, the fifth lobe in, tucked inside the neocortex, which mediates all kinds of emotions that we call pro-social emotions like altruism, compassion, joy, gratitude, all of the, those, those emotions, we find that the insula 
lights up dramatically in people and it starts to happen in just a month. So we're now realizing that if you practice these sorts of techniques and they're, they're free, they're all over the web, they're accessible to anyone, it doesn't take that long and you literally start to remodel your brain for joy. So I didn't begin that way, no, but after meditating many years, I, I, I'm so... Uh, I, I can't imagine not living life from the inside out. And I want to share this experience with as many people as possible, which is why I do all kinds of podcasts, broadcasts, and keynote speeches, and write books, because I want people to know how accessible and easy it is and the dramatic effect it has on the gray and white matter inside your skull. Oh, the neuroplast this is the neuroplasticity that people refer to in terms of the brain that, you know, it's, it's fascinating because it's such a metaphor, isn't it? For what is going on on earth these last two years. And then some that everything that we think we understand that everything that seems to be stable and anchored and, you know, with boundaries and edges and things that we can understand from our back history are actually very amorphous or they're disappearing altogether. They're transforming, I should say. And here we're talking about that very transformation of the brain itself. So this is... Well, where yeah. is it coming from? And if you wake up in the morning and you meditate, uh, you tune into something greater than yourself. Uh, I did a little bit of work with a famous theologian called Houston Smith, and he said, <laughs> I don't watch the news out there. I tune into the news of the universe, and you're tuning in there, and that becomes the source of what's conditioning your thinking and your body. M many people wake up and they're tuning into the news, they're looking at their, their social media feeds, they're orienting their consciousness to the outside world, and that's not gonna do any good. You're gonna feel rotten usually and, and stressed and bad after doing that. Now, if you go and, it's not like you live in a bubble or you go off in, into a cave, you aren't in denial, you aren't uh, detached from the world, you you aren't just moving into a space where you ignore all those things, but you are viewing them then from the perspective of being. And you first of all hooked up with the news of the universe, which is every day life is functioning, we're breathing, all is well, our hearts are beating, we have so much to be grateful for every raindrop <laughs> we give thanks for. So we give thanks for every raindrop. I mean, we live lives of such bliss and joy and gratitude. We're overwhelmed by the absolute majesty of being able to take one breath. So you live that way, and then you go and face the problems of the world. I mean, we, I started the Veteran Stress Project because I wanted to get this PTSD healing work. I had a whole 20-year career in PTSD research before I began to look at, at non-dual states. But we get this work to people and we do the work where people are traumatized and we work with people who are refugees, we work with people who are displaced, and we do all of that work as well, but from the perspective of attunement with that news of the universe, which is that we have breath, we can feel these positive emotions, we can condition our brains that way. And when you approach your life with that orientation to the all that is, that's where your inspiration comes from. Your creativity just downloads from that every day. You then go out into the world. You have a radically different life from one, if, if one in which the input into your consciousness and the conditioning of your consciousness comes from the outside world. So that's why I advocate meditation and doing it first thing in the morning before you get engaged with the world. That will shape your day in a whole different way. Oh, my goodness. Um, 
this is very, very important work that you're doing. And in my mind, what I'm hearing, and I don't know if the, the veterans themselves express this to you. I imagine it comes up quite a lot initially that, um, they, you need something, something tangible or people feel like they need something tangible to replace the old trauma with. And what we're talking about here with you is not a tangible. It seems very ephemeral, even though it's very real. It's literally rewiring the brain and the whole way that we live, that we relate, that we perceive, that we literally breathe. But to get from that fear, that trauma, and I again, I refer to the trauma that now not just the veterans are experiencing, but a planet is experiencing in the aftermath or hopefully the path towards the aftermath of COVID, which was a real shock to the system. Uh, there's still a, a fear of letting go of the old because we Absolutely. want so much to feel, to have something tangible to hold on to. How do we make this transition, Dawson? How do we well, do that? We're fighting against four billion years of evolution because our brains evolved in an environment full of threats and the degree to which our ancestors paid attention to threats, they survived. It's like the blissful person sitting on a log gazing at the stars got eaten, but the uh, person who was scanning the environment all the time for threats. So even our optic nerve is sending around 8 million bits of information per second to our occipital lobe and our brain. We have all this information flooding in and we look for what's wrong. Swami Satchitananda would do this fun activity with his disciples. He would take a red pen and take a white bed sheet and put a dot in the middle of the bed sheet with a red pen. He'd hold up the, the white sheet and he'd say to his disciples, what do you see? They'd say, Swami, we see a red dot. He'd say, no, you see a white sheet with a tiny red dot. But our brains are, 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 are just evolved to focus on the bad, the wrong, the exception. And so what we do is we have what I call caveman brain, just scanning the environment, looking for threats all the time. And if there are no, <clears throat> there are no real threats, we think about imaginary ones, deadlines at work and arguments we had 25 years ago with people and all kinds of stuff. Our brains are just programmed to seek for threats because it's what evolution designed them to do. But that's not your whole brain. You also have, in my book, This Brain, I describe four circuits. And these four circuits make what we call the Enlightenment Network. And mm -hmm. in these Tibetan monks, these, these Franciscan nuns, others we study, the Enlightenment Network is totally lit up. And what actually starts to happen to caveman brain, structures like the amygdala, which mm -hmm. is the the fire alarm of the body, that starts to shrink and atrophy in people who do this long enough. So you're shrinking caveman brain. Another part that shrinks is the nucleus accumbens, which is highly involved with addiction and craving. Those parts all shrink. And then the, the enlightenment network is all lit up. One of those parts of the, the network is the part that pays attention to, to emotion and dials up positive emotion and dials down negative emotion. In one case history, in my book, This Brain, a man that was being examined with MRI scans began to meditate and be mindful. And the part of the brain that regulates negative emotion, that regulates anger, fear, greed, blame, resentment, all of these negative emotions, 
That part of the brain is called the dentate gyrus. That's right in the center of the brain. That part of the, his brain. Can you say this name again so our, our listeners okay. hear it clearly? What's it called? The dentate? Dentate gyrus. And it, it, it has a lot of networks. Mm-hmm. It touches and it regulates negative emotion. So you aren't upset by what goes on around you. And so in eight weeks of meditation, his dentate gyrus grew by 22.8%, okay? His dentate gyrus grew by almost a quarter because he's doing this thing behaviorally. It's affecting his brain, and he now has much better ability to handle all of the stressors and the negative emotions of life. So you want to be that person when you have the fire, when you have the financial crash, when you have the war, when you have the trauma, when you have the job loss, when your house, when your mortgage is underwater, you want to be that person who has, a, who has the ability to regulate, regulate negative emotion and then make yourself happy. So that's what these mystics do. And that's what anyone can train themselves to do. Is there, Dawson, is there a limit as to how much growth the dentate gyrus can evolve? You, you're mentioning now after only eight weeks, 22.8% growth, which is already astonishing. But is there, can it eventually develop far beyond that? Have you, you know, measured? Uh, Alison, that, that's a very interesting question. So the, the question is, is there an upper limit? Is there an upper limit to happiness, joy, these states that I, I'm describing? Is there an upper limit to brain growth? So mm-hmm. in this brain, I asked that question and I found one study <coughs> that compared mugs who'd been meditating for, now 10,000 hours is like the, the marker of a master meditator, 10,000 hour meditator. These monks have been meditating for an average of 20,000 hours. Mm. Compare them to monks have been meditating for 40,000 hours, just crazy amount of meditation. Mm. And they found that even between 20,000 hours and 40,000 hours, there was brain change. So it appears there's no upper limit that some of these adverse stress-related parts of the brain start to shrink and atrophy. Some of the parts of the brain that make you happy, regulate negative emotion, help you focus, because there are four components to the to the enlightenment network, and I won't go into them here. I talk about them in this brain a lot. But you, those parts of the brain become active, start to grow, and become your predominant experience until you become unshakable. We found this brain change in people meditating for a month, not while they were meditating only, but during everyday life, they weren't meditating and still the suffering part of the brain was dialed down and the compassion part of the brain was dialed up. So you are not only changing your your experience of the initial part of your day in meditation, you're literally changing the entirety of all the domains of your life. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Irvin, do you, do you meditate, Irvin? I never really asked you that. I mean, you already seem to be flourishing for, since decades in your life, but w- what is your secret, Irvin? Do you, are you working on your dentate gyrus on a regular basis? <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't be all, but. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I don't know. I, I seem to be connected with that, uh, like it or not. <laughs> well, <laughs> all the time uh, asking what I need to do and what I can do mm. what's ahead of me and mm. I get direction I get guidance mm. it's not a formal meditation it's, I just live like that I seem to be connected I was connected as a child, as a musician mm. and I never stopped that level of connection I don't see the world right. from the outside I like to live the world from 
Romney as being connecting with the universe. This is not Dawson just said a moment ago, quoting somebody, <laughs> tuning into the universe. That's what I'd like to do. That's what I want to do. Because Does music I, facilitate that for you, Irvin? You said as a child, you've already been very open to this realm. Was music a portal for you or? Of course. Yeah. When you, when you play music all day long, I mean, well, most of the day anyway, from the time you're five years old, obviously mm. it doesn't make a difference. Mm. And uh, so this, the musical experience is an experience of living in a dynamic space something other than the everyday sense-perceived world. And that world is is meaningful and coherent. If you play really bad music, yes, then it isn't, but I, I have an aversion to that, then I must stop it. <laughs> the music has to be coherent, harmonious, and, and whole, whole in every respect. And then, of course, you are, you are being shaped by that. So I have been shaped by that, and I'm always looking for that, too. You know, uh, what I'm trying to do is, is the subtitle of a book that many people have been pushing me to do and write a kind of an autobiography. It's called My, my, my Voyage. My Journey. Sorry, I have to remember <laughs> my journey. And the subtitle of that is A Life Spent in Quest of the, of the Purpose of Life. So mm. I, I can say that that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find the purpose of life. Perhaps it's crazy. Perhaps it's, uh, perhaps it's not, but if I ask myself what I am doing, what I have been doing, and I'm going to be in, a, in a 10 days, I'm going to be 90 years old, so mm -hmm. I can ask myself what I have been doing and what I still want to do is, is the quest for finding purpose. Mm. This is a very, very important word that you're naming, Irvin, purpose. And this swings it back to my original question for you both and for Fred about um, being versus doing or finding some kind of a balance in this new human experience that we're having of both, I suppose, because we've been so top heavy in, in particularly the Western societies of human doing and that's a, a phrase that I know a lot of people are familiar with now. You know, what's your job? What's your career? Prestige, wealth, um, you know, your persona. Uh, and there's been very little nurturing of just who one is. I'm struck by the fact that, Irvin, you're talking about purpose because can we have purpose in this life as a human species without necessarily doing? Or does that, is that part of the very nature of being a human, that we're being and we're also doing something that gives us a sense of meaning. What do you both think? You know, think? purpose has been rejected by the traditional science community, at least in the West, as being anthropomorphic. And it's something that you just imagine. How can you have purpose? You just have brain cells firing mm -hmm. in sequence. And interact, you're interacting with your body, with the world around you, and the rest is imagination. Mm. But purpose can only be had by a human being if there is purpose in the universe. Mm. So then you find the purpose that there is. You can have all kinds of uh, relative purposes, you know, short-term, mm. superficial purposes. You just want to get a better meal better job, things like that. Of course, that's all part of life. 
But if you're really seeking what is the purpose of life, you can only, I can only find that this is a meaningful search. If there is something to seek, if there is purpose there, and that means that this is a living universe which evolves in a non-predetermined, in a non-haphazard, vectorial manner, moving from state to state toward a final, not I don't know final, toward higher and higher states, actually, mm. from the Big Bang to what we are now and to what we will become, not only on this planet, but wherever in the universe before this universe collapse, uh, collapses into the size of a pin, of a, uh, of a head of a pin. Because I think the consciousness that we have is, doesn't collapse with the physical universe. The consciousness is something that is above and beyond the, the physics of the world. And our task, our purpose, is to contribute to a higher level of consciousness, which is one one consciousness in the world, as Schrodinger and many others have said. <laughs> our work is our task in life is to bring that consciousness to a higher level. Because all consciousness is, is one because it's a hologram. It's a hologram is a holographic kind of a, of a of 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 an entity where all things are reflected in all other things. Nothing is separate from that. And if can contribute to that, I think we are doing what the best thing and the most of the thing that a human being and living being can do, namely advance the level of consciousness in the universe. Sounds crazy, sounds over-ambitious, but I think <laughs> it is my, my conviction. I want our, our audience to know that you just got a huge thumbs up from Dawson. I had my thumbs up. <laughs> okay. You've got to reinforce the fun and the positive here. Uplift. <laughs> and it's so true, Irving, what you're saying is also that purpose is a pre-existing condition in the best sense, perhaps. That purpose is already innate. It's it's in the cosmos, in consciousness. And it's just for us as humans to allow that to become manifest through us, the vehicle. Is, yes. is that more or less what you're saying? Yes, yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Dawson. Yes, one, one consciousness, one consciousness, <laughs> as Irvin's saying. Irvin has a brilliant book, by the way, which I just reread called oh. Science in the Akashic Record, which talks, talks about these these information fields in which we live and that holographic universe. And so the choice we have, the fundamental choice we have as human beings is, do we align with it or do we not? Do we just busy ourselves with mundane activities over here or do we align with it? And what I see in people who are align, aligners is, uh, it also mentioned synchronous, since the synchrony of music. And what we find is synchronous brainwaves. We find their brainwaves are highly regular. So in people who are oriented toward the outside world, who don't meditate, who don't use any of the personal growth tools we have available to us, their brainwaves are often jangled. They aren't, they aren't in harmony. They're like an orchestra all playing their own thing, not playing together. But what we see when we hook people up who are in these st states, we see synchrony in their brains. We see synchrony between the left and right hemispheres. We see synchrony in waves going through their brains. And we see enormous amounts of this brainwave called gamma, the highest frequency brainwave there is. 
and it is associated with flow states. It's associated with, with joy, with creativity, with inspiration, with what's called binding, where you are pulling in ideas from all different parts of your experience into a coherent whole. So, um, that's what you want to, want to cultivate is use these types of, of practices and then move into the state of synchrony and then be in that, that gamma brainwave state. In that state, you are aligning with that one consciousness, and then you're bringing that into actualization in your daily activities. You say, what will I do today? That's an expression of the brilliance of that one consciousness. What can I do at the local level that is at that that is the a reflection of what Larry Dossie calls non-local mind. You're a non-local mind in that state. Now I come back down to reality. I'm with my wife, my family, my friends, my team. What do I do here? And you go play. You just go play based on all the wisdom and inspiration in that one consciousness. I was just going to say, Dawson, that's beautiful. And I, I, I think that there are a lot of listeners that are struggling in their day-to-day lives. Maybe they don't have family. Maybe they're about to, you know, lose their job or they're, they're hanging on for dear life. They've got to make the mortgage payments or just, you know, find another leaf to put on their grass hut. Although I'm not sure that they're getting this feed right now, but they're feeling this in the ether. So from a practical standpoint, um, the way to infuse fun and flow and creativity, even into practical, difficult daily moments, there is a way to do this, you're saying, not to constrict the energies, but to stay open. And somehow, how, how do we do that? Again, how do we merge these worlds, if you will. Well, just take the most difficult thing that you have in your life right now. And so it might be an interpersonal conflict. It might be a financial struggle. It might be a feeling of overwhelm. It might be depression about the state of the world. Just look at the thing that most disturbs your inner peace right now. And for all of us, there's something. I I sometimes meet people who are millionaires or even billionaires and they're worried about stuff too. You think people who are, sometimes I meet people who are like stars and you think, oh, it's an awesome person. And you talk to them for five minutes and you realize <laughs> they're as traumatized as the average, average Joe. So we, we all have these challenges in our, our lives, but, but there is this phenomenon called resilience. How much resilience do we have in the face of all of the disturbances in our personal lives, in the personal lives and in the world? And people who are resilient, have the inner strength to face these things. So resilience is like a muscle that you grow over time. You don't just one day have resilience. You can develop resilience. And resilient people are those who have inner resources. In one wonderful analogy I learned when I was living in the ashram at 15 was that if you take a bar of soap and squeeze it, either it's going to go up or it's going to go down. So when there's pressure, are you going to use that pressure, those difficult things in your life, to... Mm-hmm propel you to new heights. That's what resilient people do. In the face of trauma, people, about two-thirds of people who go through the fire, like I did when I lost everything in that about five-minute period of, of that night in October of 2017, um, for about two-thirds of people, they experience what's called post-traumatic growth. Not post-traumatic stress disorder. A third of people do get PTSD, but two-thirds of people who go through those those circumstances actually are like the soap that pumps up, up upwards. So if you are a resilient person, if you 
built resilience in your in yourself, then you are able to use those very things that are going to push other people under, and you use those for, for personal growth. The pressure's on, things aren't working out well, and you use that to literally propel yourself to a higher space, a higher state of consciousness, a higher state of being, a higher perspective. And there you have resources, you have abilities, you find that you have strength and courage and people and insights you don't have when you're bumping around at that local level. So it's resilience that makes the difference. And then you meet the challenges of life and two thirds of people have that ability. Mm. Fascinating term. Uh, Irvin, do you think that the world at this moment is in a post-traumatic growth? Uh, and I don't want to call it, call it disorder, but a growth state as Dawson is talking about, or does it feel more to you still like PTSD or, or is it neither at this moment in your, in your view? Not is, but could be. Okay. Post-traumatic growth is what I call upshift. Indeed. This is the same thing. Mm. And I think we can shift up because we are in a trauma. And after a trauma, we can grow. We are mm. challenged in our very existence. And that gives us an occasion to change, to shift from the embedded old habits and mind patterns, think patterns and behavior patterns. To, to shift into a world which is more aligned, more aligned with the with, with nature, with the universe, where people are more aligned with each other and with their environment, to become more normal, have the more norm. We talked mm. about in this podcast also that in terms of the new norms, there is a norm in the universe, mm. which is a holographic universe. Therefore, that norm is in us, in everything you do. And, and in every single being, in every uh, every quantum, every quantum particle, that is that norm. <laughs> if we can find that, if we can find it, because if we can allow us by meditation, by going in deeper into ourselves, by enjoying art, by enjoying nature, by engaging in acts of kindness and love, all of these things are bringing us closer to that norm. We have lost the norm. We have gone way beyond that. We have thought everything that you can do with this technology and that can make money, we should do. No question about whether it's right or wrong and whether it's, it's happy for others or not. If it makes money and it can be done, we can do it. And this catch a sketch can kind of a universe that uh, the civilization into which we got after the Second World War and which is taking us to unsustainable dimension of our existence, way beyond of what is sustainable in, on this planet. So I think there we, there we go. We need to rethink where, who we are, as you are asking. And we need to think that we are, believe and find that we are one with the world around us. Our consciousness is one. And that by exercising our oneness, we can live, live healthier, our brain works better, our whole system works better, and provides a better basis for our consciousness. The consciousness which we share, which is in us, which is also the consciousness of the cosmos, then we fulfill the purpose of our life.
So this is just how much I would say in a nutshell, but uh, mainly details of it are tremendous, to, to recognize that we have got to change fundamentally and know that that change, the key to that change is not in the world, not on the authority, not above us. It's in us and it's, and it's below. That's where it comes from. And what we hear now from Dawson and what we hear from forward-looking wise people all over the globe is to go back, find yourself, connect with who you are, connect with the world around you, and then spread that. Be be contagious, <laughs> not the virus, but with a new mindset, with a new paradigm. New paradigm. And then when people in that consciousness begin doing things in the world, they have extraordinary insights and do extraordinary things. And there are so many positive things going on in the world right now that are just off people's radar. Like, I don't know who listening here knows about the Trillion Tree Project, but there are about two trillion trees on Earth. If we had another trillion trees on Earth, we would quickly return to the carbon levels in the atmosphere of the period before the Industrial Revolution. How do you get a trillion trees? Well, there are several huge initiatives to plant a trillion sustainable native trees in areas that are deforested. That this is this is this is happening right now. Do, I mean, do, do we know realize this is happening? Carbon capture. There are carbon capture companies. They're like giant big tubes sucking in air, precipitating the carbon out of it, using it to make things like bricks, and then. Um, sequestering that carbon from 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 the atmosphere. Do you know how many plants there are like that? There are many in commercial operation right now. So there are all these things that were that are going on and people are so focused on on the on the problems. And I'm not denying the problems. I'm not trying to uh just ignore them or 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 minimize them. They are grave and they are severe. As Urban said, they are threatening up the survival of our species on Earth. But there are all kinds of positive things going on as well as people are connecting to that one mind, that great consciousness, and then they're doing things, they're getting inspiration and they're getting insight and they're getting creative ideas. And they're, they're building businesses and nonprofits and organizations that are making a huge difference in our, our future. So it's worth, for every bad news story you read, I challenge you, go read three good news ones. There are so many of them out there and you just have to go and, and balance this as you are viewing, uh, to have a complete picture of what's happening in the world. Indeed. This is so, so important also for our listeners to understand because Irvin has talked about this before as has Fred, you know, does everybody on earth have to wake up or wake up at the same time, which of course is not going to happen. That's just not the reality. But if a few people, you know, like when you're on an airplane and you hear the announcement, put on your oxygen mask first before you take care of your child or your partner, whoever is next to you. In a sense, I think of that. For those of us that can put on the oxygen mask first and, and absorb these wonderful techniques like EFT, which I'm going to ask you more about, Dawson, in a little moment, uh, or whatever resources we can find to foster and cultivate this inner life and this relationship to consciousness, the more that will spread, as Urban is saying, virally, contagion. This is the best sense. And there's wonderful stuff going on out there. I want to bring Fred Sow into the conversation. I don't know if Fred is there. Fred? 
There he listening, is. Listening, listening, yes. Arriving direct from <clears throat> the universe. <laughs> <Here's> Fred. <laughs> Fred, I want to ask you, because I wanted to ask you and Dawson, but let me turn it over to you first. Um, there are meridians on the individual body, uh, you know, the acupressure points and so forth much like on our earthly body uh, with particularly strong energy vortexes. I think of Machu Picchu, the Great Pyramid, uh, Tulum, Mexico, Sedona, Glastonbury, Stonehenge, etc. Similarly, but on a cosmic scale, do you think that our planet, Earth itself, is a meridian, a pulse point, sort of receptacle, uh, for feeling, living, growing, as as Dawson likes to say, in relation to the cosmic body. Do you understand um, my question, therefore? Um, taking the individual human body and its uh, acupressure points, and then the global planetary body and its vortexes around the world. And now I want to scale it out to planet Earth as perhaps a meridian, an energy in relation to the cosmic body. Do you think that? Of course. Um, there mm. are structures to um, energy traveling. And I want to make a point. There's a difference between cosmos and universe. Ah. There's a difference. So you're talking about how the cosmos expresses itself into universe. How consciousness from the field becomes an evolutionary energy, then create materialism. And from materialism, how did they physicalize information flow to the body? Huh. And there are many bodies, even for ourselves, uh, we have the physical body and all information is stored into our uh, DNA. And then on top, there's the uh, emotional body, the mental body, the astral body. And then there's a much more connected into the cosmos, into the universe evolutionary energy. And so there are a system of how this whole thing works and their structures. And that information flow is like your handphone. There's <laughs> Wi-Fi and there's wiring. Now the body itself, like ourselves, are like the earth. If you look at our body, our composition is pretty much the same as earth. 70% or so water. We're making up the same material, uh, which is earth and metals. You know, the elements are the same. We're in fact the same stuff. And of course, on a quantum level, there is no matter, just vibration of energy. And the rest of it is like form. And so, you know, earlier we talked about purpose and all that. We have a natural beacon to go back because we came from there. It's a holographic reality. So let's say if we are, I think these meridian energy is less of a concern. We first have to figure out how is our body being constructed and how information is delivered. And they're delivered both chemically and also uh, neurologically, electrically. But more important, we have a Wi-Fi system. In every <laughs> cell, we have a microtubular receptor. So we look at the handphones and well, I know how it works. But you don't know there's a Wi-Fi system, right? And so Earth is exactly mimicking this in the universe. But it is not exactly like a human body. But it 
actually is an expression of the energy body. And it's conscious, but it's not sentient being consciousness, right? Mm. So mm. here we are talking about there's a beacon because we are the top of the food chain of consciousness. We are self-aware. Well, some intelligent animal, they gradually can develop some level of consciousness, of self-awareness, but we are not the same. Therefore, everybody's born to ask the existential question, and everybody wants to seek purpose. But actually, it's just the nature. And because we are lost and not ignorant, because the information was so much influenced by external, because our receptors and stuff like that, we don't know who we are. Now, you not be, if you play uh, a, a, a metaverse game and you put it on, and you get a real sensation, you hit it, and then you get killed. Do you think you get traumatized? You don't. You get excitement, but you don't get traumatized because you're playing a game, right? Not the same thing today. We're, we're playing with holographic reality. We're playing a game, but we don't know. We don't know. That, oh my God, I'm going to die. And then we get traumatized. <laughs> the dog barked. Oh, I get traumatized. It's going to bite me. Now, every day, do you know how many times we're traumatized? If you're going to pick the sand out of your eye one by one, endless. You'll never succeed. That's why all healing is shifting of consciousness. All healing is self-healing. The rest are intervention to help you help yourself shift consciousness. Because if you're conscious, I'm just playing a metaverse game, you're not going to have traumatized. But if you think you live next to a beach, you're trying to clean your eyes of sand one by one by intervention of healing, your whole life with your healing, and you still believe. Because you believe you live in the sand. <laughs> you believe you're next to so Just move your house. There's no beach. There's no trauma. So all these things is so for us to wake up that we are playing metaverse game in reality. And we create a reality for us to mimic our reality. It's called projection. <laughs> so how does energy move? It's not so straightforward. It's just meridians. The Wi-Fi system is working. The neural system is working. The whole field is working. The material chemistry elements are cooking. So information flow is far more complex. So we talk about physical meridian of Earth. Yes, there are physical meridian. And that Chinese are very much believe when they pick the capital, they call feng shui. There are meridians that move energy through. But the biggest ability to manage is our thought. With the thought, we create everything. If you can hold a thought, you can manifest anything. So how does energy work? Far more complex, because energy and consciousness is everywhere. A meridian is like healing. And they tell me we're going to talk about healing, right? So many techniques in healing, and we can look into the nature of healing. But all healing happens in shifting consciousness.
that I think we'll ask expert、uh, Dawson to talk about. Well, okay, that's awesome. Let's swing it back to awesome Dawson now, <laughs> because Dawson, we're talking about healing techniques, and I want to hear a little bit more from you now about <clears throat> EFT, emotional freedom techniques. It's it's kind of an acupressure tapping that that fosters a state of well being.、Uh, First, tell us about that, and then I want to ask you a question about that.、Um, but explain to us what that really is, what you do. Yeah, EFT is very simple, and it uses acupressure rather than acupuncture. So, rather than needles, it is using pressure on acupuncture meridians. And so you you tap or you rub like this is on the small intestine meridian over here, and there are twelve of these meridians, and we stimulate all of them, and that's a key part of EFT. We also use elements of cognitive therapy and exposure therapy. So part of it is intentions, and part of it is remembering the bad stuff. And so if you remember the bad stuff, if you remember the the traumas of your life, just Work with traumatized people so long. I I go to the worst case scenario. People have been been developmentally traumatized or severely traumatized. Complex PTSD. These are very very difficult conditions to treat in our mental health system, and they are accompanied by anxiety, depression, and all kinds of physical diseases. If the the famous ACE Adverse Childhood Experiences study showed that those people who have a lot of childhood trauma. Wind up having more cancer, more heart disease, more suicide attempts, more smoking, more obesity, more diabetes, all kinds of of other diseases later on in life, and they die much much sooner. So that's the consequence of unhealed trauma. And these these wonderful tools from cognitive therapies work beautifully, but when you add in the ingredient of acupuncture, acupressure on these acupuncture points. Then we find people heal much, much more quickly. Like I worked with one,、um, we've done over over thirty studies of EFT for PTSD, many clinical trials, and they show that it is dramatically effective. And what happens to the, that caveman brain, that midbrain, the amygdala, the hippocampus, all those structures that process stress, is when you put people in an MRI and they think about something traumatic. They have a big response in the emotional brain. When you then do some tapping, some EFT with them on the acupressure, on these acupressure meridians, as well as the cognitive therapies, what we then see is put them back in the MRI. They think of the traumatic event, and there's no activation of the emotional brain. So it's really, really effective. And then what happens in the the lives of those people is powerful. Like I worked with one young veteran who served in in Iraq. And was in the Battle of Fallujah in 2004, and one one of his friends was killed, and he he was a medic. He had the job after his friend's body was brought back in, of cleaning the uniform of his dead friend. And this this young man was utterly traumatized by first of all the smell. It had been out, out in the Iraqi sun for a couple of days. Did not smell very good. He literally was running out of the medic's hut to hyperventilate, breathe. Running back in to start cleaning the uniform and have to go back out again, and as he told the story, he was totally traumatized. His stress level was a ten out of a ten, but he told the story and he did the tapping. So now he's thinking of the trauma and he's reliving that terrible day and that terrible experience and all the sights and sounds and smells 
of his dead friend's uniform. And now it's also tapping. So what's happening in the brain is that it's getting the second signal. The first signal is the memory that traumatizes you, pushes you into fight or flight. The second signal is from the active pressure meridians that calms you and calms down the emotional brain. And then eventually they, people still have the memory, but they no longer have the traumatic response to it. So that in a nutshell is what EFT is and how it works. Mm. Is EFT, Fred, I, I know that acupuncture, acupressure, these are ancient, um, ancient art healing art forms that have been indigenous to the Asian cultures. Yes. Have you, have you yourself uh, done acupuncture, acupressure in your life? Have you engaged personally? No, in, of course, of course. Yeah. All the time. All it's the just time. part of the enjoyment mm -hmm. and maintenance. Now, of course, you know that the tapping techniques and all these energy <laughs> psychologies uh, are actually mm -hmm. originated from Chinese medicine. Mm. And so the body, mind, and spirit is not separable. One thing uh, that uh, the Chinese Yellow Emperor contacted, we are sick because we're ignorant, but we think we know. That's why we're sick. If we know that we are ignorant and we awaken, that's fine. But sickness is we think we know, but we actually don't know. That is the cause of all sickness ignorance now we have to look at this thing into a, a, a entire different thing and think about trauma in the context of karma <laughs> so it's not so straightforward like i have a trauma so why does two person one is traumatized another person is having a good time for example a kid goes on a roller coaster another is what screaming with happiness one is screaming with horror right why? Because we are just a holographic thing. That the energy attached to it as an individual, as a collective, it's all in our DNA. So as we come into this life, we still have pattern from our previous lives or cultural influence in our collective consciousness of your family. So in the Chinese, you cannot think about Trauma, the things of trauma. Of course, there are bodily intervention of trauma, which is not taking medicals, but actually, it actually calms your nerve as a Newton way. The energy, when you're tired, you tap, you burst. And of course, when you're tapping, you're getting the energy. And in, 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 in for example, psyche or in the thing of energy cycle, you are repeating the words. And then you know the words are fake, but actually has an effect on your body. Say, it's, it's, it's true. Why is it happening? I know it's not true, but I say it, I feel better, right? Mm -hmm. So the body, mind, and spirit works not as we think it is. Mm -hmm. The trauma is not separated from karma. And then you have to look it into from a consciousness-based reality. That this is just a holographic projection. And you're just playing a metaverse game. <laughs> for those of our now, audience that are now clinging for dear life to something <laughs> tangible <laughs> now there are certain things you have to understand we evolve in a direction of challenge we are guided by a homing device 
and our internal wish and dreams are going that way. Mm. So when we are being, we're guided by this. When you're awake, you allow yourself. Now, when you're being, you actually do more. So I was in lockdown in Shanghai and everybody's losing it and having a good time. I see all the possibility and my space inside me expanded because I have no space outside. I'm in a room. (laughs) So every time I go to quarantine, I grew. It was an opportunity. Right. So how you see now in the, 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 um, Dr. Hawkins map of consciousness, you have energy level, you have emotion state, and then you have that worldview at that emotional state. The Buddhist calls the different state of emotion and the state of where you are in your world, your world that you live in at that state called worldview. So how do you stabilize the energy and shift it out? So you stay there. You can work on your worldview. You can work on your energy. Unfortunately, you can't work on your emotions. Emotions are like wave going to the, to the, to the beach. It will come. So you're either serving the big wave, having good time, or you're going to be slammed by it. You can work how you see it. You can work your energy, but you can't stop the wave. Like learning to surf tsunamis, Fred, that's so well said, really. And, and it makes me think of a question that I wanted to ask um, Dawson, because you've referred to the necessity and the, the necessity to build resilience individually, you know, and how important that is to build it in advance of crises so that we can better navigate when crises do inevitably come. But because we haven't really done a lot of that in advance, and the crises are now here, I mean, there's wonderful, wonderful stuff going on in this world. And I want to reinforce that so that people who are listening understand it is not all bleak. You know, we're looking at one one stage on the left side and one stage on the right side. There are many other stages and there's so many different shows going on. It's like a multi-ring circus. It depends on where I suppose one wants to uh, emphasize their focus, which, which of these dramas that's playing out. But how can we now help a, a, on a wide scale, a mass scale to build the resilience with, for example, the EFT work? I mean, is there, is there a thought? Because it has to do with tapping and uh, attunement, so to speak, and and a, a rhythm, a beat almost. And I wonder if, if there are artists, you know, musical artists, uh, famous ones in, in China, for example, or someone like Taylor Swift in America, who might put the EFT into a music video so we can actually pass <laughs> the planet and move the planet and get them attuned, get the vibe. <laughs> it is, does that exist, or is that in the offing? <laughs> Alison, you know, if, if you happen to know Taylor Swift, I'd appreciate you putting me in touch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and who's your equivalent of Taylor Swift, Fred, in, in the Asian uh, market? Yeah, right. Some huh? famous Qigong master. We can do a co-production. Yes. Yeah, so it, 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 it's it's happening uh, partly from the ground up and partly from the top down. So, for example, after 10 years of work with the VA, the VA approved EFT, and EFT is now used in a number of VA hospitals and centers. So that's, that's top down. We're advocating for EFT, like I testified before congressional committees twice, on getting EFT into the system. So we need to get it into 
St. Joseph's Healthcare and Humana and Kaiser Permanente and all these healthcare systems top down. But there are, we estimate there are well over 10 million people doing EFT ground up. And so we want to really keep that, that wave going of people finding EFT and then using it and releasing their trauma. And that does make us collectively more resilient. I would love to see more influencers doing it in entertainment. Like I know, for example, in sport, we have a lot of people doing EFT, professional golfers. Um, I worked with members of the Tennessee Titans football team. Many of them were do, use, using EFT. Uh, several, uh, uh, like the Oregon Beavers, they won the, they've several times won the, the, the college baseball championship after they were, they learned EFT from their coaches. So we see a lot of professional sports, major league baseball, national football league. Professional Golfing Association, a lot of Olympians were tapping in the last Olympics. I'd love to see it, though, in that celebrity level, and especially entertainers. I'd love to see more of them doing it. And I want every single person to have access to this. I mean, imagine the kids who are traumatized and then are suffering from anxiety or depression at a very early age because of the, the pandemic, because of their social skills, because of having to navigate puberty. I mean, there are all kinds of places where I mean, kids, kids want statistic that's really thought-provoking. The average baby, the average infant lost, laughs about 300 times per day. But that number decreases, especially around 5, 10, 15 years old. The average adult laughs on average 20 times a day. So there's more than 90% drop in our laughter in our early childhood onwards. So we, 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 we have this culture where we, we forget to laugh, we forget to play, we forget to be in joy. And I'd love to see children have access to this in schools. Some school systems using it. We, we used it successfully with various traumatized groups of, of kids like Rwandan orphans, uh, or orphans from the genocide in Rwanda. There's a lot of tapping that's happened with them and that's really helped them shift. But Kids were suffering from social anxiety, from test anxiety, from performance anxiety, from all of the stressors of, of childhood and onward. I want to raise a generation of people who is love, and I want them to be laughing 300 times a day, Alison. I want everyone to be laughing 300 times a day. I want to see that, that, that burden of, of trauma shift and teaching it to kids early on, especially, is a powerful way to go. Oh, absolutely. When I think of it also, and I, I, I am so sorry to bring this up, but I think it's necessary in light of the, the rash of school shootings that have gone on recently. There is a real trauma going on right now uh, on the part of young people in America. This is not as predominant, thankfully, in other countries, but children are growing up anyway in a world that is bombarding them. So I think it is so imperative from east to west to all points in between to infuse this, yes, into the, the young people, into the school systems. Uh, and I, I often thought, and I thought maybe I was crazy, but that every G20 or COP 27, 28, 45, they should all begin with the leaders of the countries in a tickle session that they <laughs> unless they raise their arm and are tickled, and then they go into the meetings, okay, <laughs> or a massage or both, a foot massage or a tickle Oh, session. I love it. And yeah. All those things are physiological, and that's what makes a difference. That's why tapping works. That's why yoga works. That's why EMDR works. All of these are physiological things. Tickling works. You know, all movement works. All of these things reduce stress. 
If you just try and process stress mentally, it's not very effective. But if you have a somatic component to it, then it is effective. And absolutely, we should have leaders doing this. We should have people doing it in, in, in any kind of responsible group. I've been doing some interesting studies now. I don't know the data back from them yet, but on group flow, what happens if you take a team of people and you put them all in flow before they start their meeting? Uh, it's powerful, then you're going to have a much better emotional atmosphere and your creativity is likely to go up. So unfortunately, mm -hmm. I can't tell you quantify that yet, but I've been collecting data for the last three years on group flow. What happens when you're in a family who's all in flow, when you're in a, in a workspace that's all in flow, a group of scientists who are working together and they're all in flow, a, 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 a whole an entire classroom in flow. Imagine that. Imagine for all hooked up to the cosmos, all that, that great holographic reality, having these downloads and we're doing them together. And the initial evidence shows that our performance just goes through the roof. So we become much more, much better at solving problems. One US government study showed that people try to solve comp complex problems. When they were in those flow states, their ability to solve difficult issues, really, really gnarly problems, their ability to solve those problems rose 500%. We need these brains. We need these abilities. We need these, these, these groups that are accessing this remarkable creativity that springs from these states and then applying it in everyday life. So tickling, cuddling, hugging, all of those things really should be part of the physicality. Bringing this into our bodies should be part of everyone's everyday life. I love this. Fred, are you going to introduce a tickle session? But Fred is a great entrepreneur. How are you going to integrate the tickle sessions into your, into your business meetings and your ITA Institute? <laughs> well, you know, we tickle people's minds. Ah. So, for example, uh, we talk about a, a whole system, right? Mm. So we're eating this industrial meat that has a lot of trauma. The chicken's traumatized. The milk is traumatized. You eat this meat, and it becomes part of you, part of your chemistry. Trauma is already transferred by what we eat. So we talk at yoga. Yoga goes to Ayurvedic. It's a whole way of living, a holistic approach. Or if you go to a Taoist, okay, they have a whole system of energy work. We don't need tapping. No Taoist go there and tap. Because the energy is flowing. It doesn't get blocked in the first place. But they have to eat a certain way. Actually, when you practice a certain level, you can only eat raw food and you eat very little because your energy system is different. So now we have complete ancient system that people pluck out pieces and, okay, I have social yoga. We do a doing, and then we have a smoothie, and I network, and I feel really good. My systems are there. Okay, bits and pieces. But if you look at the whole system, it's a mind-body-spirit system, and it's an energy system. So you cannot pluck one piece out and say, well, we'll do this, we'll do that. So what I like to do is tickles people's mind to expand. And you get the joy. It's not... Ha 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 laughter, but it is a really deep smile that comes from your heart opening up and your mind expanding. That joy is a very subtle, subtle joy. Now, it's very funny. In the Yellow Emperor can uh, canon, the first sentence, it says, never lose your childlike nature. And everybody know in India, bliss is the best medicine 
and mukti, freedom, is your mm-hmm. ultimate goal, mm-hmm. right? So these things is not what the form. This form helps, but more important, if you transmutate the essence, it's there all the time. Your heart is smiling. You're opening up. You are either opening up your heart in the embrace or closing it. You can feel it. The heart chakra expanding, opening up, or contracting. When you're opening up, you're happy. The word in Chinese about happiness is called opening up your heart. Mm. And you close your heart. I don't accept you. It's a rejection. Embrace or rejection is whether your heart chakra opens or closes. And you can feel it. Practice. You can feel it. You can, when you do it, you're sensitized. Folks, Staying I, open heart is the way to go. Oh, indeed. Open heart. I think we need to tickle physical and spiritual and mental. We need to stimulate people back into the fullest of their human and then some experience because we are human and much more than whatever we thought was a human. I want to end on that note because there's, I I, I just want to ask if there's anything, final words that either of you want to say before we conclude, uh, or have we said it all for this, this episode? (laughs) Should we leave people laughing? Yeah. I I just, I just, uh, when I, I do a lot of workshops, live workshops, and also Zoom workshops, virtual workshops. And um, Allison, when, when I meet people either live or on Zoom, and they tell me this story, often they're, they're suffering. And I'm so moved by those stories of suffering. And I know that a lot of that suffering is self-imposed and unnecessary. We can tap, we can meditate, we can move, we can spend time in nature, all the things that Irvin mentioned as well, that can lift us. And so I, I really urge you to question your suffering, question whether you need to keep on doing it tomorrow the way you did it today and have the same life path. I can tell you from having worked with tens of thousands of people that a radically, a radically transformed version of you and version of your life is available. And when you are in that space of connecting with that holographic universe, downloading all of those ideas, that creativity, you have a magnificent life and a discontinuous life from the path you've been on up to now. So that's really my, my, the main thing I'm going to urge people to do. Use these tools. They're free. They're on the web. You can do active pressure. You can do meditation. All my stuff is just free on EFT Universe. You can go there and grab it and use it and um, apply these things in your life. And you will discover that first small things, then big things start to shift. Love yourself enough to open the possibilities for your life and you'll discover that they are magnificent. Beautiful, beautiful. All all of you today, I I thank you so much. Awesome, Dawson, I almost called you Dawson. (laughs) (laughs) And Fred and Irvin, and this has been such a, again, a buoyant, uplifting and so needed discussion. I cannot emphasize enough to people the possibilities that are really at hand and you don't have to imbibe it all at once. We can go gently, slowly, each person take their rhythm, but find those little 
moments of love and stimulate them with all these wonderful resources that are out there. Um, thus concludes today's compelling discussion. Ah, Allison, I yes. have to leave a note. You asked me to give a last word. Oh, I yes. I leave an idea. I apologize. No, not at all, not at all. So uh, we're running late, but this is very important. I maybe you have heard of morphic field. That's a field that we're connected. And I think in epigenetics, the proximity and all that is related. Also quantum theory. This is the thought Asians. Just focusing on achieving your awakening. Change yourself and the world will automatically change around it. That is being and everything is done. We start with this question of being. I want to close with a remark of how to be. We are all connected. When we awaken, everything awakens with us. Thank you. Oh, wake up, people. Beautiful. Wake up, people, and let's tickle our spirits into a new way of living. I am so jazzed by this. Thus concludes today's compelling, it's more than compelling discussion with our hosts, Irvin Laszlo, Fred Sow, and today's awesome guest, Dawson Church. Thanks to he and our worldwide audience, as well as our wonderful production team led by Nora Cesar, Kenichi Sugihara, Fabrizio Beria, and those many wonderful others at ITEA Institute, and Alison Goldwyn, inviting you to join us for more podcast episodes and to gift a copy of Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, the book to yourself or a loved one. It's a great companion during challenging times. From whatever nation state or emotional state you might be in, dawn of an era of well-being is the place to tune in. The bravado of our ego has historically gotten the better of us, so this time, when building that new paradigm for humankind, let's include humankindness. Stay tuned and stay attuned. Thank you for joining us. Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing is a co-production of the Laszlo Institute, ITEA Institute, and Select Books. It's produced by Nora Cesar and Kenichi Sugihara with theme music Chimera by Piba DuPont. The book, Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, co-authored by Irvin Laszlo and Frederick Sal, is available wherever books or e-books are sold. Please subscribe to Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, the podcast on Apple or Spotify for more fascinating guests and discussion. My name is Alison Goldwyn, founder and creative director of Synchronistory.com, a future party for the planet broadcast live worldwide, wishing you well-being till we talk again next week. Oh, no.